Well, our kids are going to uh, We Church and Children's Church. Well, an archaeologist was digging in the Negev Desert in Israel and came upon a casket containing a mummy. After examining it, he called the curator of a prestigious natural history museum. He said, I've just discovered a 3,000-year-old mummy of a man who died of heart failure, the excited scientist exclaimed, to which the curator replied, bring him in and we'll check it out. A week later, the amazed curator called the archaeologist you were right about the mummy's age and cause of death. How in the world did you know he was 3,000 years old? Easy. There was a piece of paper in his hand that said 10,000 shekels on Goliath. <laughs> One more. That's what you get when you don't laugh a lot when the first one. Um, uh, a boss said, oh, you believe in life after death? The boss asked one of his employees. Yes, sir, the new recruit replied. Oh, well, that's okay then, said the boss, because after you left early yesterday to go to your grandmother's funeral, she stopped by to see you. <laughs> and I'm going to stop right there, out of my head. Well, um, I want us to, the, the, the message that I'm going to preach this morning is two parts. Somebody just turned the lights out, I guess. Uh, it's two parts. First is the, uh, this morning, and then the next one, the next part of the sermon will be next week. There's just too much here that I cannot go over until I do this, but I really believe this is so important. When we look around America today and we see some of the things happening, why are these things happening? Why are they happening? And so I want to pre preach a message, and the title of the sermon is The Unseen Cost of Not Serving God. The Unseen Cost of Not Serving God. And I want you to turn with me, and I wanted to do this for a while, but I wanted to get all my information and stuff together, so I've studied this. But turn with me over to the 12th chapter of the book of Matthew. And I want to start reading with verse 43. And listen to what Jesus says. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and then they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for illuminating your word. I thank you for how you love us and care for us. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that's here today. I thank you, Father, for the fact that you promised us that where two or three are gathered together in your name, that you would be there in the midst, and I believe with all my heart that you are here this morning. And so, Father, I pray simply may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, for you're our strength, you're our redemption, you're everything, Father. We cannot do this without you. We've said that so many times, but, Lord, we believe that with all of our heart. So may this message speak to the hearts and souls of people this morning, and I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. 
Why these verses? And I will say this, that we were doing a Q&A a few weeks ago on a Sunday night, and one question that was asked was a section of this section of Scripture. In fact, Jeff Brown was the one that asked it. And the question had to do with verse 43 and the words of dry places. Dry places. He asked this because the places that we've sent our armed forces to Afghanistan, Iraq, and some of these places, which were mostly desert places and considered to be dry places, but many of our young men and servicemen are returning back to us, coming back from those places, are committing suicide. And so the question was, are there spirits in such a way that these dry places are having an effect upon them? The question that deals with, are there demonic influences that is causing this? So I began to study, and this has led me to several resources, but this is so massive that I want to divide this up into two sermons. The first is today is how this verse affects us individually. And the second that I want to do next week is the last phrase. And the last phrase, verse 45, so shall it be with this wicked generation. The question that really leads us here is why are we seeing events and decisions in this country that can only come from the pit of hell? Have you, can you really believe that we are, that people are falling out with one another over the idea of abortion? That we have to pass laws, laws that want to kill innocent babies? One federal judge just this past week has come out and said that the heart, there is no such thing as a heartbeat in a baby. It's unbelievable. How do we get here? How do we get to the place that we're seeing this thing? How do we get to the place that the home is being attacked? You read Black Lives Matter. You read some of the things that the World Economic Forum is talking about. And one of their, one of their purposes is the dissolvement of the home. How do, we, how do we get to this place? So the question that really leads us is, is why are we seeing events and decisions in this country that can only come from one place? Like, like the desire to make pedophilia acceptable. Uh, Colorado's actually got a, a poster up of a man walking with a little child and says, can't we all just love one another? And it's for pedophilia. Abortion. How do we, how do we get to this place? The question that I have, have, have we come to the place where the, we think that we have become so advanced that the devil has convinced us, as convinced us as Christians, that Ephesians 6.12 is irrelevant. Now, what does 6.12 say? It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness, against this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. 
Have we come so far intellectually and technology uh, that, that now, and now we got robots that they're asking questions to, and they ask questions, this, this thing of this artificial intelligence. They ask this robot, what do you want to do? You know what she said? She said this, I want to kill you. How do we get here? Have we come to the place that we don't understand what evil is? That we don't really, we, we think that all the things happen is just natural, that there's not an evil, uh, there's not an, an evil influence in this world? And when we look at this book, the same book that tells us of God's love, tells us how much He cares for us, also tells us that we have an enemy. That's what it says. So the question I think is, have we become so advanced? Is it not time for God's people to quit sitting on our decalon and open up and say simply the fact, what's going on and what do we need to do? Is it not time that we examine our relationship with the Lord? The Bible says in Psalms 139, verse 23 and 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in that way everlasting. Is it not time that we come to a place that we search our hearts and souls to really see what's really there, how close we are to the Lord? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine yourself. It says, examine yourself as whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Do you know that Jesus is in you? Test yourself, unless indeed you're disqualified. He tells us also to test yourself that Jesus Christ is in you and make sure you're safe. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Make sure that you're saved. You're secure. Once a person is really saved, I don't doubt whether or not that God's going to keep them saved. I believe he will because the Bible says over in Philippians 1.6, it says, He who hath begun a good work and you will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. But Apostle Paul one time said this. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that that which I have committed unto him, he's able to keep it against that day. I believe that when you're saved, you're saved forever. But here's the question. I think we got a lot of people in the church today, not in our church, but over in this church and all other churches that maybe think they're saved and they're not saved. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the very power thereof. Do you know Jesus? That's the question. You know, Jesus himself said there will be those who are religious all around the church. In the Old Testament, Israel, they had what they, what they call the mixed multitude. And they were there. They were all around them. They knew what was going on in Israel. But they were not part of God's people. Jesus one time said this. He said in Matthew 7, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And, and many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I've always said that about that verse. He doesn't say to you, well, I knew you for a while. I knew you, I knew you when you were walked with me for about 10 years, and then all of a sudden you turned and you walked away from me. No, he says, I never knew you. 
I never knew you. And so it's time that we examine ourselves. He tells us in, you know, Jesus, you know, he tells us in Ephesians 4:15, but speaking the truth and love that you may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Grow up. That you grow up. And let me ask this question, are you advancing? Do you see a difference in your life from the time maybe a year ago or two years ago or from the first time you got saved? Do you see a difference in your life now to the day of now? Is your prayer life greater? Is your Bible study greater? Is it are you just sort of just waffling along? What is it? He tells us over also in Mark 4, 28, he says, For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain of the head. What's he saying to it? He says simply that there ought to be some growth in our life. And if we want to mature in grace, we must live near Jesus. That's the key. It's not what you do, because the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It tells us that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It tells us that by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. Not of works, least any man should boast. It tells you all those things. But the, que- you know, but the question I'm asking here is, are you maturing? If I want to mature in grace, we must live near Jesus. Does Jesus mean more to you now than he ever did? In his presence. Do you, are you continually in his presence? We, we can never be content with a distant view of his face. Become near as John did to lay her head upon his chest. That's what he wants. Are we living in that time where the book of Revelation says that we have lost our first love? I mean, we look at our life and, and the things that maybe we used to do or the things we did or whatever it is about, and now we don't, the things maybe we, we said, Lord, boy, if you just let me do this, I'll commit to this, and we're doing it, and no longer do I commit to it. Are we closer to the Lord today than we have been? We must never be content with a distant view. And so in chapter 12 of Matthew is where Jesus ends his public ministry. Why? Because the Pharisees, in chapter 12, that the Pharisees accused Jesus, accused him of miracles that Jesus did, that he did it by the power of the devil, Beelzebub. This is, this is the sin against the Holy Ghost that people know about. But he ends his public ministry. And he ends his public ministry there, and the disciples ask him over in Matthew 13, they say, and because he now starts teaching in parables. He teaches in parables. And the disciples come to him and they say, they say to him, uh, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? In verse 11, here's what he said. He answered and said to them, because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. You see, if you want God to answer you and give you the things that really, the deep things of the Lord, if you want him to show you things in his word, you've got to get close to him. You've got to, he says, draw nigh to me and I'll draw nigh to you. So in Matthew 12, verses 43 through 45, when you read these verses, most theologians that I trust in, that I really believe, I've read a lot of their stuff and I believe in, 
they all first put these verses in a category and they talk about this. They talk about the worthlessness of self-reformation. Now, what do I mean by that? Self-reformation is the person who is trying to clean up their life without Christ in their life. I talk to people every day about their problems. And when I talk to them, I talk to them about, okay, let's talk about giving it to the Lord. Well, I got this going on, I got this going on. You're not giving it to Jesus. Self-reformation is, I can handle this. Self-reformation is, I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. Self-reformation uh, I just, I can't remember the guy's name. He plays in all these movies and everything. And he gave his philosophy of life the other night. And his philosophy, and what's his name? What, what's his name? What? Matthew Connick, whatever you know, anything. But if you listen to him, he talks about joy and happiness and all this. But what's he talking about? He's talking about the same things as being taught in our public schools. And what is it? It's humanism. And what's humanism? Humanism is no more than this. Humanism is taking God off the throne and putting you on the throne. That's what humanism is. And so we, we want to do what we want to do, not what God. And so, I, I, Lord, I can handle this. I can do this. And so self-reformation is the person who's trying to clean up their life without Christ in their life. They believe in morality. They believe in law. But most of the time, they're very, very legalistic. I don't know if you've ever been around these people. They don't smell, drink, and chew. But they don't do anything else. They're always talking about what they don't do. They never talk to you about what they do through Christ. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't chew, they don't go with the girls to do. They have never surrendered to Jesus. Can you mark the time that you surrendered to Jesus? You know, some people have come, but they come with addition. In other words, they don't really believe they're sinful. So they come and they want to add a little Jesus onto their life. I'm a good person, even though the Bible says in the third chapter of the book of Romans, there's none good, there's none that seeks after God. I've come, and Lord, I'm, I'm a good person, and so I'll just add a little Jesus. That's what we try to do. We try to add a little Jesus with us. But the truth of the matter is, if you really want God to do something in your life, you cannot come by addition. You've got to come by submission. What submission means? That means I come and I surrender and I say, Lord, I can't save myself. I'm, I, I'm lost. I, I need you right now. I need you in my life. That's the difference. That is the difference. J. Vernon McGee said that these are the hardest people, those people that are so uh, 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 in self-reformation, these are the hardest people to reach. They're unsaved church members because the truth is they think they have no need of regeneration. The devil's own don't recognize the fact that they need Jesus. They will reform, but reformation means death and destruction. Regeneration means life and liberty. That there's something that's taken place in my life where I know that Christ has come in. I've been born again. Jesus said that their whole need, that the whole need not the physician. But you've got to see 
your need of Jesus. I remember when I came, one of the reasons, main reasons I came, I didn't understand everything. Some people, well, I, need to, I didn't understand any reason why I came. All I know is I didn't want to go to hell. You know, Jesus is saying to that wicked generation, although you may be cleaned up yourself, or in other words, you have swept your house clean, he's saying this to you, you're in danger. You're in danger. Why are you in danger? Because demonic influences and evil will be seven times greater, is what he says in these words. In recent times, there's been a great resurgence of interest in morality and ethics of returning the nation to the religion or moral standards of its founding fathers. Yet it is harder to live a holy life, live the Christian life, I think, than any time in our nation's history. In fact, I think in the next few months and things we're going to see. I just heard... uh, I just watched a video on a, on a girl that's a nurse, and she's suing the hospital she's with because they made her go through a, made her go to a uh, training session in which they said that the instructor told them basically that white people and Christians and the Bible are racist, and she's suing them. So as a result, there's a lot of, because because of some of the things that's happening in our world, because we want morality without Christ, and as a result that there's been many denominations, cults, special interest groups have become highly visible. And so many people have become concerned about moral and ethics. But the Bible, God's word is unequivocally in the standard of righteous living. God wants you to live righteous, yes. Justice and social responsibility that you need to have. You know, he tells us in James that if somebody comes to us and hungry and we tell them we'll pray for them and send them away, that's not what what you're to do. This is why we feed like we do. This is why we clothe like we do. This is why we help people when they can't pay their bills and other things like we do. We do all those things, but I'm telling you, all that without Jesus is useless. Scripture makes it clear, morality by itself without the right relationship to the Lord is in many ways more dangerous than immorality. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continually emphasized that more and more outward righteousness is one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel. So in this parable, Jesus pictures the consequences of religion. In chapter 12, he he pictures the consequences of religion and moral reformation apart from the right relationship with Christ. And the main character in this parable is the unclean spirit in this. He's a demon. Now, one of the things, while I don't believe, I do not believe that, uh, that if you belong to Christ, And if you've surrendered your life to Christ, that you can be possessed by a demon. I don't believe that. And why don't I believe that? Because 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says this. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. If Christ has come in and taken occupancy in your life, he's not going to share one little inch of space with a demon. It won't happen. Now with that being said... For the Christian, the devil can put a demon to try to oppress you, though. 
And I, be, I sometimes I see a lot of Christians that are oppressed. They're not, they're not possessed, but they're oppressed. Satan has put a demon on their trail, and 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 they, you know. Yet the Bible says, if I resist the devil, he'll flee from me. But see, if I don't know that, then I'm going through. So. This is why we are told in James 4, 4, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you have an enemy? See, many times when I read through the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, or Psalm after Psalm after Psalm talks about your enemy, your enemy with you. And I would have to say that most of us feel like, well, you know, I read that, but I, I think it's talking about David and when Saul was chasing him and all this, and we, that we don't, have, we don't have an enemy that will come against you and really t- attack you. But may I say to you, you do have an enemy. You have the worst kind of enemy. You have an enemy that wants to do one thing with you, and that's to kill, maim, and destroy you. He not only wants to kill, maim, and destroy you, he wants to destroy your family, your children, everything else. He goes by different names. He goes by Satan. He goes by the devil. He goes by Beelzebub. He goes by that old dragon. He goes by a lot of different names. But I'm telling you, you have an enemy. So you're saying there's no danger. No, I'm saying there's great danger. If you're not walking with the Lord and being spiritually alert, this is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he's, what he says is, he says, be sober. What's being sober? That means be alert. You're watching, you know. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, let me ask this question. Who's he going to devour? Who are those he's going to devour that he seeks out? He's going to seek out those that don't know the Word of God. They don't know how to take the Word of God and apply that Word of God. They don't have practical. They, they, they don't know how to take it practically and put it within their life. They, 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 have a, they have a very weak prayer life. Church attendance many times, is, and I don't believe you because you come to church, you're going to be saved because you come to church. But I'll tell you this, I believe that one of the things that the Lord showed me when I first got saved is I need to be in church. I need God's people. My wife and I have said many times that we're closer to you all than we are many of our own family. And when I got a problem, I got something going on, I'm probably going to call one of these men in this church because I respect them so much. That's what I'm going to do. And so, and, and so but if, you don't, if you're not giving yourself totally over into study and, and prayer and things, he, he's looking for those people. I'm, but I'm also saying that greater danger for the person who doesn't have Christ living inside you that you have never given your heart to the Lord. You're in danger. You know, it's getting being more and more as a pastor, you're becoming a fool for Christ. But I don't care. I'll be a fool for Christ. But I'm telling you, if you don't know Jesus, you're in danger. Not only danger of hellfire, you're in danger not only of the Lord coming back and you being left here, but you're in danger of demonic influences. Remember the story in Luke 12? The man who said, I'm going to tear down my barns. He was so rich, he had everything. He said, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build greater barns. And, and the Bible says, thou fool, thy soul shall be required of thee this that night. That's what it says. 
You know what it says in the Greek? It says in the Greek, they're asking for your soul. If that doesn't scare the bejesus out of you, I don't know what it would. They're asking for your soul. Remember the demons when the Gadarene was there and, and Jesus told them that, you know, and, and it always blowed me away that while the Jews and all the other people, the people in that day did not recognize who Jesus was, all the demons did. <laughs> they knew who he was. They called him the Son of God. And, and, and then they requested, they requested that when he was going to, put him out of the gathering man, that they go into this, they were called legion, they were going to go into this herd of pigs. There was over, somebody said there was over 2,000 pigs there. I think it's what it was, maybe more than that. But all these pigs, they went in these pigs, and what did the pigs do? Pigs knew what to do. They went straight over a cliff into the water. Why? He knew the demons didn't like, well, the demons were looking for dry places. They went in the water. Morality apart from the living Christ can never be more than a sham. You see, when you deliberately don't come to Jesus, what you're basically saying, you're saying that your righteousness is good enough for you to go into the presence of God. Where the Bible says that your righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags. Filthy rags. In verse 43, when it says the unclean spirit goes out of a man and he goes through dry places seeking rest and he finds none, he finds none. Unclean spirit represents wicked, vile nature of all demonic spirits. But the particular demon or spirit was not as evil as he could have been. But he had some friends who were, who were worse. And the demon goes through dry places. Dry places are any area or anything that the spirit of the living God is absent from. Let me say it again. Dry places are any area or thing that the spirit of the living God is absent from. These are places where demonic spirits exist. Now I'm going to start meddling instead of preaching. Fortune tellers. Seances, tarot cards, Ouija boards, items like gargoyles or objects that represent Satan. Don't mess with these things. I've heard some highly intellectual people talk about these very things and said, no way. Don't mess with them. The spirit went seeking rest and he did not find it. He did not find it where or who it was attached to. Now, demons do not need water or food, it seems like. Therefore, waterless places, the demon in his own corruptible way was seeking rest or some place of greater satisfaction. And from this appears that the demon preferred to indwell bodily creatures, humans, or animals. So in verse 44, it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. I will return to my house. Notice the word, my home, from which I came. So it seems that this demon had some control over this man's life. So it seems there's a sense of ownership or possession. When it returned, he finds it empty and swept, but put in order. Thus to suggest moral reformation, but it can also suggest the abolishment of the things of God. 
That's what we've done in this country. That's next week. No dependence on Christ. Anything that represents God like, like crosses or like, like crosses and churches who have taken down their crosses, they've created a dry place as far as I'm concerned. A person can rid himself of sin, certain sinful habits, but such a cleansing, no matter how thoroughly extensive and no matter how, uh, what the motivation is, it's never permanent unless it's accompanied by saving faith in Jesus Christ. Many in Jesus' day surrendered the symptoms and the consequences of sin to him, but they did not, but they did not give him their sin. They didn't see themselves as sinners. A great example of this is the ten lepers that came to Jesus. And after he healed them of leprosy, only one came back and thanked him. That one went away, had salvation. He went away whole. But the other nine did not. They, 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 and so Jesus, uh, many people came to Jesus and with their symptoms and the consequences of their sin. But they did not give him their sin. They didn't come and recognize, I'm a sinner. There's nothing good inside me, Lord. I need you. They didn't see themselves as sinners. I, I wonder sometimes when I have people all through the years of being a pastor, I've had people that they've gone through terrible circumstances. They've gone through a car wreck. And, and the Lord spared them. And all of a sudden they're in church. I have people that have had cancer and other things and, and boy, you know, and, and they come to church. They come. They run in. I've, I've seen married couples that are on the last leg and, and um, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're on the verge of divorce and they come and now they come to the church and what do they want? They come to the church and they say, Oh, uh, we, you know, we're going to really be active and whatever, you know, this kind of stuff. And they think that's the answer. No, the answer is Christ. And all of a sudden, they, they'll come for several weeks, and all of a sudden, I don't see them anymore. What's that an indication? More than anything else, it's an indication that they have not given everything over to Christ. They haven't had that death of their spirit inside. When the basic sin nature is not dealt with through the miracle of repentance and trust in Christ, the removal of a particular sin, or even demon leaves a person spiritually house unoccupied, swept, and put in order, but it's a subject to reoccupation by seven other spirits more wicked than the first. And they go out and they live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. A religious, self-righteous, reformed person is subject to Satan in a way that guilt-ridden, immoral person is not. They're blind to their spiritual condition. Verse 45 says, Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be with the wicked generation. They enter and they dwell there. To live, and the Greek word is the Greek word kotakatikio. And it's the same word Paul used in Ephesians 3.17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. For Christ does not dwell, demons are free to dwell. 
I'm not saying, now hear, now hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying because a person has not become a Christian that they're possessed with a demon. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, you're open to it. You're open to it. The last state of the man is worse than the first. Self-righteousness is like a leper who rubs his fingers and toes, but he can't feel them. His fingers, his fingers and toes have been desensitized, a person to sin that he's not aware of, the very soul riding under demonic corruption that's in their life. The Bible says that having their conscience seared with a hot iron, what does that mean? That means they're beyond feeling. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 that they had knowledge, but they never came to Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, For if after they had escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled with them or to overcome the latter is worse than them than the beginning. Verse 21. For it would have been better for them not to have known the ways of righteousness have been, uh, having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. In other words, they came. They had knowledge. They know what they needed to do. But they didn't do it. Many times there are people ask about Egypt and ask about how that, how that Pharaoh, you know, says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And most of the time it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but God hardened. And they ask me, well, how in the world, you know, what, what do you think about that, God hardening Pharaoh's heart? They're saying, well, why would God harden this man's heart and then get him to do the things he did? God came, listen. How many times do we have people come in here and the message is the same? And I have some people respond and they come to it and they open up their heart and they say, Lord, I want what you got, and they do it. But I have other people that go out here maybe upset. The same message. They hardened their heart. They turned away from it. They didn't do what they needed to do. You know, I want to close this way. Here's the way I want to close. This kind of sermon, maybe some are thinking, well, boy, Lee, that's me. And I have no hope. Or maybe you've had a tough week and then you come in here and you hear a sermon like this. Or maybe you did your devotional and read something like Hebrews 10, 26 that basically says this. It says, for if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but you've got to understand what that means. The, right, the letter of Hebrews was written to a group of people that was under unbelievable persecution and sacrifice. And many were turning back. The Bible, he says, many were drifting, and some people were, were at a place where that they, were, they were sinning again. But he goes on to say that simply that many were turning this way. They were turning back to to Judaism or back to a, 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 the old covenant. And so what he's saying here, he's saying this here. He said, if you turn back to that way, if you go back that way, there is no hope there. You're willfully sinning. Why? Because you're choosing a way that will not take you to heaven. That's what he's trying to say here. But remember who the writer Hebrews was, was writing to. A Jewish congregation, really a Jewish congregation in Italy. So the real question can God still forgive me? Is there hope for me? Now, I don't know who I'm talking to, but for some reason the Lord wanted me to include this, and I feel like I'm talking to somebody. But in the same book of Hebrews, he writes this over in Hebrews 12, 
verse 15. And I wish we, I know that's in the King James, but I really wish we could look at it. Can you put that in the NIV? Can you put it in the NIV? I didn't say put a, an IV in. I said put it in an NIV. You got it. What it says in the King James Version, see to it that at least anyone falls short of the grace. See to it that no one, listen to this. See to it, and this is why I'm preaching this message today. See to it that no one misses what? The grace of God. See that no one misses the grace of God. Uh, Hebrews, I mean, Romans 5.20 says this. It says that sin abounded, so grace, grace, much more abounded. Where sin did abound, grace did much more. But it also says in 520, it says, Moreover, the law entered that offenses might bound. Well, in other words, God increased, the, he, as the law came, to what? Increase sin. Why would he want to increase sin? To get you to understand the only way there is that you can be saved is to come to Jesus. He's trying to drive you to Jesus. That's what he's trying to do. So I, I, I'm, I'm just simply saying the real question is, sin God? Yes, he can. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Saying it is, it is like no one misses the grace of God. Listen to me. Grace is g- greater. Whatever your sin is, grace is greater. I don't care how far you've fallen. Grace goes greater. Listen, grace is powerful enough to erase your guilt. Grace big enough to cover your shame. Grace is real enough to heal your relationship. Grace is strong enough to hold you up when you're weak. Grace is sweet enough to cure your bitterness. Our ability to appreciate grace is in direct correlation to the degree to which we acknowledge our need for it. The more I recognize the ugliness of my sin, the more I can appreciate the beauty of God's grace. I read a quote by a pastor, and it said, If the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. Let me say it again. <laughs> I'm probably getting trouble on this one. If the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. Now, I read that, and I thought about it for a long time, and I read it, and I thought, well, I know I'm a sinner. Because the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all sin. I know I'm a sinner, and I know I've sinned big. But am I the worst sinner that's ever been? And the more I thought about it, and the more I came to the place, I had to come and I had to finally come to a place that, you know, my mo- and I thought about myself, and I thought about my motives, and the more difficulty that I had admitting it, but I had to admit, yep, I'm probably the biggest sinner that I know. But let me ask you something. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like over in, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says what? I'm the what? I'm the chief of sinners. See, how you see yourself. See, I'm trying to get you to see something today, if you'll, if you'll listen. I'm trying to get you to see, regardless of how bad you think you've sinned, regardless of how far you've gone, grace is greater. And God wants to free you up. He doesn't want you walking around with all that Stuff, I won't say that, but he wants to walk around all that stuff in your life. 
He wants you free. Jesus said, he that's free is free indeed. He wants you free. Amen. St. Augustine once wrote, my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. So the Apostle Paul sets up the equation and on one side is your sin, and on the other side is the scale. And it's the scale and God's precious grace on the other side. So Paul solves the equation in Romans 5, 5.20 when he says, Moreover, the law entered that defense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. He, he says in, in Ephesians 3, 17 and 19, and I love this because he said that Christ, he, here's, here's grace, this is, grace is Jesus. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love uh, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Listen to this. What is the width and the length and the depth and the height of the love of God. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And when a person begins to come to the place that they realize that they're sinful and they give it all over to God. Guess what the next verse says. And now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. God who will take that person that really allow him to mold him and make him, he can do anything with that person's life. Give you peace and the joy and the happiness that you thought you could never have. How do I know all this? I know it because there was a time in my life that I didn't think God could forgive me. And this is why I'm from a time, a time of 19 years I've been with you. I've quoted this verse more than any other verse because it was the first verse I ever memorized. It was John 6, 37. And when I heard this verse, it was like water being poured on the desert. And it says this, that it says simply that we're, it says, All that my Father gives me and will come unto me. And he that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. That's what he says. I'll never throw you away. I won't do that. I read that. And I said, oh, Jesus, you won't throw me away? He says, no. I've got plans for you. I've got plans for you. That's what he will do. As you look over your life and you honestly look at your sins because grace, the greatest of God, grace means I don't have to keep trying to convince myself I'm not that bad. I can say, yeah, I know I'm that bad because the grace of God goes farther. Amen? I can be real. Even if I've been bad, I can be real. Grace. You see, God is good. But he doesn't do things to make himself good. No, he does good things because he is good. And he loves you more than anything else in this world. And so I'm just simply praying simply today that if you're here today, do you see yourself who you are? Is there, is there a mountain of sin piled up here that you haven't given to him that you need to come and just simply say, Lord, I want to surrender all this to you. I don't want to be this way. Is there? I don't know what your needs are, but we pray today that you'll come and accept him as Lord and Savior. If there's other needs, you can come also. Let's pray. Well, Father.